the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And welcome to another episode of JJ, the JJ Dillon Podcast. I am your co-host, JP John Paz. And of course, with me is the star of the show, two-time Hall of Famer, the leader of the Four Horsemen, and the second greatest manager of all time. He was a WWF and WCW executive, JJ Dillon. JJ, how are you doing this evening? I am doing great. Good to hear your voice. It is great to hear you, and it is great to be talking about the history of J.J. Dillon, of course, on this podcast. And last week, we talked about you leaving the WWF in 1996, and today, we will be talking about you entering the world of WCW once again in 1997. Now, my first question to you, J.J., is... When you left the WWF in 96, was WCW always on your mind as a possible spot? Like, was that an opening for you? Um, I never, I, I didn't think about it. Anytime I've gone somewhere, no matter where I go, I, I am always totally um, committed to whatever it is or wherever it is. And I, and I don't make the move if I'm not comfortable or figure it's not going to work out or if there's, but I, I've been very fortunate in my career. I have not accumulated a lot of negative baggage that, or uh, it's impossible in this business to be liked by everyone. Um, but I have always, I, I, I practice the golden rule. I mean, that sounds corny to a lot of people because I always try to treat people the way I want, want to be treated. And if you do that, uh, if somebody's feelings get hurt or something happens, a lot of times you don't even know because they you hear it from uh, uh, another party somewhere down a third party, or sometimes you never hear it till years later. So I just uh, I've had a fabulous career. I've I've probably interacted with I don't know that there isn't anybody in the business that I could think of if you gave me a name that I say that I hadn't either worked with, at least met them. And so, and I've, you know, traveled all over the world. So I, I, and like you say, I'm, I am a storyteller and I guess I have a lot of stories to tell because uh, of all the places that I've gone. Yeah. And especially the WWF. And of course, what we talked about last week, but of course, 
WCW and jumping over there. So they weren't kind of a part of the plan because you, you obviously were very focused WWF. So when you leave the WWF and you're basically a free agent, how do you get over to WCW? Is there somebody that's kind of getting, is it like Kevin Nash and Scott Hall saying to Bischoff, we got to bring him over. Is it Tony Schiavone? Who's kind of getting you over to WCW? Well, you know, there are some people who thought that, that I planned the move, you know, before I made the move. And in mm-hmm. reality, uh, I was leaving where I was. I've been fortunate in my whole career. I never had like a, a, a lull time where my future was uh, up in the air, didn't know what my next plan would be. And in this case, um, the one person that I knew at WC did, had never met Eric Bischoff, but the one person that I didn't know who was the person that I called, and that was Tony Schiavone, because Tony and I went way back to, with Crockett. And I you know, just told him, I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be available and don't know if there's interest in me. I would think because I've been high profile up to that point that I, I would think they'd be interested. But, you know, you never know. <laughs> there might not mm-hmm. for some reason. So I said, I'm just mentioning to you, uh, I'm throwing it out there. And if you can make an inquiry or, or, or just see if there is interested and get interest and get back to me and we'll go from there. So that's, that's what happened. Tony, uh, I guess Tony talked to Bischoff who I had never met and, uh, it made sense because I, I, you know, I was a high profile thing and worked with Vince. And so f- to go back to W to go back to where I started from, which was, you know, a, a Turner project, you know, would seem logical, but sometimes there's no, in this crazy business, there's no guarantees in life and no guarantees in anything. And as it worked out, uh, there was definite interest and, um, they, it, the mating was set up with Eric, who I had, like I say, had never met. And I went to Atlanta. Uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, I thought, well, I'll go to Atlanta and my wife, I said, let's, you know, find a place to stay in Atlanta. And if it doesn't work out, the options would be Jerry Jarrett had been a friend for many, many years and somebody that I had the utmost respect for in the business, you know, and he had his, he had projects going on and, you know, not knowing if there might be a role for me or might not, but that would be an option. And then another one would be, uh, you know, going down to Orlando, either something wrestling related or there's so many other other entertainment things going down there. You know, I, I would have been comfortable stepping away from wrestling. And so I just uh, said in Atlanta, talk, you know, asked Tony to make a call and see where it goes from there. Tony talked to Bischoff. Bischoff wanted to meet me, set up a meeting. And um, he, when I went in there, um, it, it, I didn't know what to expect with Eric. And the one thing that Eric said, he said, well, I'll be honest with you. It's not like I had uh, an office sitting here with a, uh, a, a position uh, that the office is vacant that I'm vacant, vacant that I'm lo- I've been looking to fill. But he said, on the other hand, um, you know, with my background in the business and my years and, and all of my experience, um, 
it would be crazy for him not to talk to me and see if there wasn't something that they, they could work out. So um, the first month I was a uh, oh, I forget what the actual word was. I wasn't a hire as of the first month. It was like consultant, consultant or something. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, it, 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 it morphed into uh, a, a full time position, but it all worked out. Absolutely. So is it just a one on one meeting with Eric Bischoff? The day I met with him? Yes. Uh, Tony set it up. I went into the office and um, Eric, at that point, I think they had moved out to Smyrna already. I think anyway, but I, or maybe not, I don't remember, but, uh, but I do remember, uh, going in and Eric, you know, you funny how first impressions or if you meet somebody and something sticks in your mind and Eric was, was on a lap, a small laptop. And what he was doing was, uh, he wanted to get his pilot's license and he was, I think, uh, taking a course so that he could pass the test and get his private license. So that I remember that about the meeting. And the other part about the meeting was he, he kept repeating uh, a comment. He asked me no questions about uh, any details of uh, Vince's operation. The only thing he said was, because you know, they, they had some momentum at that time. Eric had some, you know, some, some momentum. And he said, how much, he was like talking to himself out loud. He said, how much longer can, can Vince last? Um, and then, and then he's kind of asking me at the same time to see what, what my comment would be. And I, you know, uh, the last thing that I'm going to tell Eric is, uh, I know because I got the feeling that, that that was like an obsession with him. I've, you know, I'm, got, I'm not only going to beat Vince, I'm going to put him out of business. And he said so in so many words. And I'm just listening and not commenting. But I, the last thing I'm going to tell him is that, uh, that Vince is like a third generation in the wrestling business. This is what Eric had done a bunch of other things. But Vince... And and, the, and the, his father before him, and the grandfather before him, um, wrestling had been everything. And the, the thought that anything that Eric could, could do was going to jeopardize WWE saying in business. And again, it just was my opinion, but it wasn't going to happen. I mean, there, there's going to be it's wrestling is cyclical. And I don't care how big the company is or successful. There's going to be times where there's lulls because it's a talent-driven business. And if you get stale and you don't have that talent to immediately plug in to kind of, you know, recharge the and interest, um, you know, you you may you, and they were big enough that that they weren't going to like fall flat flat, but you know, Eric, uh, you know, had people uh, looking down over his shoulder from the North Tower, and he had sold them a, uh, a 
I mean, they they were excited about him for the reason that they had seen Bill Watts, they'd seen quote unquote Ole, they'd seen wrestling people, and then they were not. <laughs> being brutally honest, they weren't all that impressed with people that they had done business with or met that were from the quote unquote wrestling business. Mm-hmm. And they were excited about Bischoff because they thought, Oh, well, you know, Bischoff came from Vern's company, which he was in television before. So here's one of us. He's a television guy who has had some exposure to wrestling and understands the culture and everything. So, you know, that made him look very, very attractive because they looked at him as being one of them. And by that, I mean a television person who had had uh, uh, some experience dealing with, with wrestling. When Eric is meeting with you and you're talking to him and he's talking about Vince, is there any kind of similarities with him and Vince or are you thinking completely opposite as far as personality, business and everything else? Wow, that's a great question, and I don't know that. It's a wonder if somebody hasn't asked me that before. But um, Vince, because I first uh, was was in college, and my first exposure was with with Vince Junior's father, with Vince, mm-hmm. and he was a guy who was tremendously respected. So that the Jay Strongbows and all the, the guys that were, it was like there was a personal attachment to Vince Sr. And when Junior came along and he was buying the business because, you know, Vince Sr.'s uh, health was declining, they, they didn't have the same uh, ador- adoration is probably not a, a great but I can't think of another word. They didn't have this respect for one thing. They didn't have the same respect for Vince Jr. as they did for the father because all the years uh, and the relationships and how the building business had built with all these guys. And, um, you know, Vince Sr. was, they, he was just different. I, I, if you're around the two of them for any length of time, you could you could quickly see, and it's not a, not unusual that that anytime you have a business where there's a father or a father son, um, a lot of times it doesn't work out at all, right? Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, but uh, the people that were there that have been around for a long time were people who had a uh, respect and a uh, rapport with Vince Sr. And it was now, you know, being handed over to to Junior. Sr.'s health was declining. And it just, each of these people had to start over and develop a new relationship with the son. And it was obvious to me and probably to all the, the, the talent were there that that Vince Jr. would never have the same relationship with talent that his father had enjoyed mm. because um, 
the business had grown. It grown, and a lot of these guys that came from regional territories, you know, grew and had uh, with with Vince uh, Senior and had you know they, it, there was like a genuine friendship. I would say with him, and okay, Junior was the son, and it wasn't a matter. It, that Junior didn't try hard enough. I don't think if there's anything that he could have done that would have drawn him closer to the talent, he never would have enjoyed that same relationship that that his father had. And it's just it's just that simple. And do you think, as far as WCW and Bischoff, what do you think Bischoff with the talent was he close with the talent? What was his relationship with everybody? Well, he. And again, they WCW had had gone through a group of people, one of which was uh, was Bill Watson, and mm-hmm. Bill's a personal friend of mine and a guy that I have tremendous respect for. But Bill is old school; he's from the old school, and the people in the suits at, at the upper floors of the Turner organization. Um, it was hard for them to relate <laughs> to uh, to to him and 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 vice versa. So when Bischoff came along, they thought, "Oh, well, this is great," you know, because now we got somebody who understands, you know, our industry and our culture. He's a television guy, but he's done wrestling already. So they were thrilled to uh, to have Bischoff. And as far as his relationship with guys like Hall and, and Nash and Hogan and Savage, he had a good relationship with those guys? I would say yes, but <laughs> uh, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall are were both great talent, drew a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They were also very smart people. Very, very smart people. And they knew, those two in particular coming in, knew that they had power in the industry. And Eric was kind of like just getting his feet wet and kind of feeling his way around. So (laughs) Scott Hall was smart enough to um, massage Hmm. Eric Bischoff, for lack of a better word, and kind of like, well, they, you know, kind of would have could have easily given Bischoff the the impression that oh, they were already best buds, and that was just uh, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were, I don't want to say manipulate. Well, I keep coming back to that word manipulate, but they they understood the business. And they knew what the right things were to say, and they knew where their position was going to be and what they needed to do to protect it. And they it made no sense to go around Eric and try to entrench themselves with the suits, but at the same time, they, um, they didn't want to put everything in the relationship with Eric. They, they wanted to be aware of... Uh, of uh, the other people in power who didn't understand wrestling, didn't know anything about wrestling, and they were putting everything on Eric's uh, shoulders. But these guys were smart enough to know that 
uh, like they would come around if we had a big show somewhere in Atlanta at the Omni or, or somewhere. They, they would they would come down, and the Hall and Nash were smart enough to know that to make sure they were on their best behavior and um, didn't act. And this, this is, I don't, it's going to come out wrong, but I don't know what else to say. Didn't want to act like, they weren't going to act like quote unquote typical wrestlers. Uh, hmm. They, they wanted to, to uh, give a more um, professional air about them. They're smart that way. Really, really smart. So that made the, the upper echelon people that were over Eric realized that, oh, these are two, I see why these guys are two players in the business because, yes, they're wrestlers and have wrestling experience, but they're also smart businessmen. businessmen. And you knew them quite well from the, your days, obviously, in the WWF as the head of talent relations there, and they knew you yep. quite well. Was that an easy transition, kind of, when you go over to WCW and you're dealing with guys that you dealt with before, like Kevin Nash and like Scott Hall? I spent 60 years in the business, and I've worked in most of the small operations, regional territories. And I mean, I went to Amarillo three different times where I stayed a year each time. So, and I worked Kansas City, and I worked Florida, which uh, on, on two or three separate occasions. So, I understood the culture, and I could see that when cable television was changed the business because when I was, I remember being in uh, Amarillo at the time and uh, the fans were, were always every week asking the promoters. It was Edie and Jerry Kozak. Jerry was, uh, um, uh, Jerry and Nick Kozak had been one of the great teams and, and they would always say, well, when are we going to see somebody new? They, they, if you gave them somebody new every week, they, the, that fans thought that would make them happy. Uh, and if you're going to have a, a promotion, you got you got to introduce people, slowly get them over, and then you got to get some mileage out of that process of getting getting them over. You can't you can't be. It's not like a revolving door in front of a hotel where the door is swinging all the time and there's people coming and going. And they were, you know, Hall and Nash were smart enough uh, uh, to know that, knew the right things to say to the right people, and plus they drew money. And that's the other thing. Hmm. Kevin Nash is a big guy and probably as good a big guy as uh, I can remember in the business. And you definitely liked them and they liked you. You guys got along like you guys had a good relationship. Yes. And the only, the only thing that they said to me in private one time was, because I didn't get in, I, I didn't get involved with any money negotiations. Um, the talent dealt directly with Eric, and I didn't even want, I didn't sit in on that process and didn't want to. And the only thing they said to me at one time was, um, because I knew all the numbers from every place they'd worked, mm -hmm. and they just they just said. Um, you know, we we got to negotiate our own deals, and I I hope that um, you will keep in confidence the history of what you know about where we've worked and the kind of money we made. I said yes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't 
want to try to get myself over by going in and giving them information that would be detrimental to you getting the best deal that you can. And they both said, well, we feel kind of thought that's what your answer would be, but we're glad that we hear you actually say it. And, um, so I had a good relationship with, uh, with all those guys. Uh, you know, I, if there was something that needed to be done or whatever, uh, or I could always talk to them. problem or if it was something, whether it was a pat on the back or a kick in the butt for something that happened, I had a, I had a, which I think is why I survived in the business as long as I did, because I always try to walk a mile in their shoes because I had been in their position. So I knew what their thought process was. And I knew what they were thinking. And I knew the right things to say and the right things not to say. And when when was the proper time to, to either say something or not say something. And I think that that was my, there's no insurance in the wrestling business, but that, that was, uh, it served me well with that kind of an attitude. In other words, I could, I could give, uh, give the people that were signing the checks because very invariably that's who I work for and yet um, not put myself in a position by taking any talent and throwing them under the bus whether it was about their personal lives whether it was about money whether I just I just was smart enough to know what to keep under my hat and what what uh, what I could talk about and you mentioned before about starting off part-time, basically in a consultant role, then you become full-time. What was the actual title? So you become the head of talent relations for WCW? When I first came in there, at the, again, I'm meeting Eric for the first time. And he said, well, it's not like there's a, a an office around the corner here with uh, whatever the title is on there that's vacant that I'm looking to fill. So he said, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with you. And he said, I, I, I realize now you've come available um, relatively short notice. The years of experience, I mean, he was actually talking out loud. He said, uh, with your years of experience and where you've been and who you've interacted with, whether it was management or talent, I'd have a hard time explaining to the suits here if I didn't uh, try to figure out the right path for you here to be here to help part of the team and help us succeed. And I said, well, good. I'm glad you feel that way because I'm not here. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm not, I told Eric, I said, I'm not here looking for your job or to take your hmm. place. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not on a power trip. Uh, I, I would rather see you continue to succeed and for me to help you in, in in any way that I can as much as I can. So I think that kind of cleared the air where he didn't think that that because he doesn't he didn't know me. He didn't know right. if I was somebody to come in that, uh, you know, would be patting him on the shoulder and being his friend. And at the same time, waiting for that first chance to stick a knife in his back to further my position. I never did business that way. And I think that's why I've been fortunate enough to uh, 
survived, for lack of a better word, in the business as long as I have, because that was my MO. I came in with uh, knowing that w- what I had to offer and then being smart enough to look at where I could go, where I could help, but not at the expense of somebody else that was there. And and, and if you're somebody like Bischoff, when you see you know, that, I, that all of a sudden I'm not hanging with the suits down at uh, CNN Tower and Eric goes up there and all of a sudden I'm sitting in there and he's wondering what, you know, why is he here? What's he doing? I, I, I was never, um, you know, that's the politics, I guess, of wrestling. And, and that was never my, never my thing. And I never wanted Eric to feel uncomfortable and to feel threatened. I never wanted him to feel threatened. So it, it worked out well. And technically, officially, when once obviously the, you became full time and everything, did he give you the official title? Like, was it head of talent relations? Was there an official title for you given eventually down the road? I think I was, but I was not. Uh, I was not big into needing a title or needing a name mm. or, or this is my office and I want this on the front door. Uh, I. I and I guess a part of it is uh, confidence in my own ability, what I could contribute. And I knew that if given a chance that uh, I would I would help their business. And the other thing that I because I had always been my my path, I had good relationships with virtually all, all the people that were there. The only one that uh, that I had a. And, a strained relationship with was um, Scott Steiner. And it was a result of uh, eventually they, uh, when Bischoff is gone, they, they put me in with, uh, with Bill Bush, who was running the com- company for a while, who was the money man. He was there all along, but he was the financial guy. And we were doing live TV on Mondays and uh, I don't remember exactly where it was, but it was a deal where um, Scott had bullet points, which I like to always like to give guys just bullet points, not telling them verbatim what to say or give them a script, but just kind of making sure that they understood what I was looking for their interview. You know, you hit this, hit this, and do it in character in your own way. And we were creating a little bit of... Uh, uh, anxiety between he and Flair. Well, <laughs> hmm. Scott went in there, and S- Scott. I mean, I guess I didn't ask if there was a- any ill feeling with Flair. Uh, there was uh, something I wouldn't have thought to, wouldn't have thought to ask because I thought what I was expecting was clear, and. Like I say, you don't have to like everybody in the business and you could go and do your job without letting your personal feelings cloud your professionalism. And what happened was uh, we were doing a little thing where where he was going to go out ahead of Flair and when he got in the, in the ring for his interview, now this is live, and I think we looked at 
you know, five minutes, six minutes, whatever it was, where he was, he had certain things that he was kind of needle and flare and flare come out. And then the, that would create the, the back and forth. Well, he, Scott let his, his animosity for flair and without being given specific constraints of, you know, we'll say this, this, he went out there and basically used that live airtime to cut a promo on flair and just, yeah. Oh my God. If, uh, Anybody that was watching that show would remember how, you know, it's like, well, what's Flair going to go out and say? I mean, it's like the business aspect of where we could go with the two of them is out the window because when he got out there, he made it personal. I mean, and went on and on and on. Well, then Bill Bush said, oh, my God. You know, and we couldn't we couldn't cut him off for live television. And Bill his first reaction was he wanted to fire him, wanted to fire Scott Steiner. And I said, Bill, hold on a minute. I, we just, you know, we're, you're just, you're just take, you're taking over. Bischoff is, uh, because see what happened was Bischoff was the fair haired guy. And all of a sudden one week they lost, the company lost, uh, $5 million. It was a sizable sum of money. The next week was the same thing. The third week was the same thing. And all of a sudden, these the, the suits that had been big fans of, of Bischoff are in shock that how quick it could turn the other way. And there's this tremendous hole that they're just pouring, pouring cash in. And so it was Bill you know, was looking at doing something with Flair and with Scott Steiner. And then when Scott went out there and let it get personal and went off, first thing Bill wanted to do was fire Scott Steiner. And I said, Bill, let's, you know, let's, 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 let's not us as a company um, overreact. Yes, what he did was not good. He was out there too long, made it too personal. Uh, it was hard it was hard to take and re repair what he said and bring it back where it would have been a wrestling confrontation between he and Flair. He, I mean, he made it that personal. Mm -hmm. And I said, I said, but I think it would be a big mistake to fire him. And I said, let me, I said, maybe we could suspend him. He wanted to fire him. And I said, well, suspend him. Fine. Him. I don't know. So, I met with, with uh, Scott Steiner individually, and I told him, I said, God, I said, they wanted to fire you, and I told him, no, that's not the right thing to do. You're, you're a valuable talent, and what you did was, uh, was not good, and so we, you know, I said, I don't know whether it's, uh, you know, you, you get suspended for a week or get fined, and of course, he's... He's sitting straight up now, like, huh, you know, it's like he, he was taking a personal that somebody took uh, uh, offense to his burying flair. And that's, you know, that was where our money was going to be. And so, um, 
Now you got a scene where Bischoff has been pushed out of the way and Bill Bush is in charge, who was the money guy before under under uh, Bischoff. Scott Steiner is tight with Bischoff, who now is got he has a contract. He's getting paid, but he's. Uh, I'm person non grata. He's uh, he's not in the office. He's being paid to stay home. So naturally, he's. Uh, he, you know that enabled him and Scott Steiner to become best buds, and I'm I'm not sure with uh, the guy that was the head of the company uh, at that point. Uh, can't think of his name, but but Bischoff was talking to him, and so when it all played out, um, Bischoff came back, and um, I mean. This is a crazy business, and, and somehow you think that something happens, transpires that would kill your business, or the players there, you had to break the whole thing up because guys, what had happened, you couldn't, um, you know, sweep it under the rug. And but it was better to have Flair and keep him separate from Scott Steiner as much as possible, and yet right. have Scott Steiner there because there's. They're two good, two good talents, and the business. You need talent, and it's not like you can just make a phone call and get somebody that's somewhere that, that's somewhere else in the business, and and bring them in and, and replace a Flair uh, or a Scott Steiner. Yeah, so very it, very true. It was a matter of, okay, just don't. Um, overreact um steiner needs to understand that what he did was not appropriate and that whatever personal animosity he has towards flair for whatever the reason legitimate or not it's a, still a business and and you you gotta you gotta work with, i mean there there have been times in the business where there were a, a, a brother tag team who hated each other wouldn't travel together, and yet they get there, and they're a, they're a tag team, and the fans are going crazy. And if they knew the truth, I've seen a lot of those stories, uh, you know, in the business. That, but the business comes first. Whatever your personal feelings are, you know, that's your business. As long as you don't let it interfere with the with the product. Absolutely, and you know, we're talking about kind of a little bit with WCW kind of going downhill and Bischoff. But before that, with Bischoff and everything, WCW, like you mentioned, at a, at a point, and the suits loved them, WCW was basically dominating when you got in and kind of during the beginning part of your run, they were dominating WWF, almost put WWF out of business, so to speak. Um, did you actually think that WWF was going to go out of business at this point? Because WWF was killing them in the ratings where they're making a ton of money. You said Bischoff was obsessing over it, but... Did, did you ever even think for a minute that they would put him out of business? If I had dreamed it, I would have woke up, slapped myself for even thinking about that in a dream. <laughs> there is no way. <laughs> there is no, I don't know how to make it any clearer, but there is no way that no matter what Eric did, what whoever else they brought in, we're ever going to now. There was a time there where they were looking at the weekly ratings and 
all of a sudden WCW dominated him for, I don't know, 20 weeks or more, maybe longer. And, but the, the, that was their time to, to do well. And I would tell Eric, you know, don't, don't think that because you've had this run of success that you're going to put them out of business. I, I mean, it just, it's, I, I'm sorry, but I don't think that's going to happen. And they're yeah. going to come back at some point. And it's, you know, the, and what I tried to tell Eric, too, that, what, you know, what I, what I would do and what I thought he should do is don't even look at their TV, which I never did. And when I'm there, you have your talent, you have your TV, your storylines, and have put all of your effort into making your product with the talent that you have the absolute best it can be. Give it your best. And the numbers are going to take care of themselves. And and don't look at what your quote-unquote competition is doing and having whatever they do affect the decisions that you make that may not be in the best interest of what you're doing. And, and I, that sometimes that's not easy to do. And I think it's for people who hadn't been in the business as long as I had that, that, you know, they're, they got one eye on what they're doing, but they got one eye. They can't help themselves on what they're on, um, you know, what the, what the competition is doing. Mm -hmm. You have no control over what they're doing. The only thing you control is your product. So if you make your product be the absolute best that it can be and without regard to the other, you're, and, and I, and I was, and I, you know, want to instill confidence in I said, you're, you're, it's going to take care of itself. It, it, maybe they beat you in the ratings for 10, 15 weeks or whatever it is, but the pendulum is going to swing the other way and do not do something, uh, you know, knee jerk just because of something that you saw over there. Let them do their thing. You do your thing and, and, and make your product be the best it can be. And it'll all, it'll all come out in the end. You'll be all right. And, and it did. And as far as you and your job there, you're obviously working behind the scenes, but then you become a character on screen. Were you always thinking that you were going to be on screen talent? Was that always, uh, you know, a point like, Hey, we're going to bring you on TV. Eventually you're going to become the quote unquote chairman of the WCW executive committee on air camera authority figure on camera authority figures, so to speak. Was that always in the cards, always in the plans? No. When I went there, that was like, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're bringing you here for your experience, for your, all, everything that you have to offer, but we're not, we don't see a role for you as an on-air talent. And it's not like I, I, I always took pride. If I'm on a, on there, I'm going to be the absolute best that I could be, but it wasn't like, um, I got to get on the air. <laughs> I, I, at that point, I really didn't have, felt feel that I had anything to prove. I was interested in the business side of it, doing everything that I could to make business be the best it can be. And I, I didn't, didn't feel, uh, I mean, you know, people in the arena would see me and they say, Oh, uh, you know, 
you don't see on TV? And I just, yeah, and just nod and, and will you miss me? Yeah, well, thank you. That's good. I appreciate that. And then, but it, it wasn't like I was trying to look for some way to manipulate a situation where they had to put me back on TV. That was not a priority for me. I feel like when they did put you on TV, it was one of those things where, like, they need to get the storyline over. They need it to be believable. They need to get over, you know, like this WWE executive committee and kind of counteract the NWO and counteract the heels. So I feel like you were brought back specifically for this purpose. Like, man, we have to make this seem 100% legit, 100% like, you know, like this is really the WWE executive committee, right? Like you were the perfect guy for the job. Yeah, they they uh, got one of the offices in CNN tower and did a, did a thing with a big mahogany desk, you know, and, and with me sitting there and, 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 you know, announced that, that uh, I had accepted this, accepted this position, but it was strictly going to be behind the scenes thing. And then, um, and it wasn't like, I, I always wanted to do whatever I could do best do with the talent God gave me. And if it was worked solely behind the scenes and, and never be on television again, I would, I'm just comfortable with that. Cause I had done, I, in my own mind, I had done it all and I, I didn't have anything to prove. And yet, um, if, if I, if, if there was a role for me and they wanted me to do it, then I would accept that challenge and do it to the, to the best of my ability again. So good on camera, and I just remember, obviously, you and Bischoff on on screen, kind of going back and forth. You being a part of WCW, him being a part of the NWO, and you know, you kind of laying down the law. And I remember thinking, like, man, this this is like totally legit. Being a fan, like, man, this is totally legit. JJ Dillon is the chairman of the executive committee. You, know, you totally buy it. Is that one of those things where you're just immediately when they put you back on TV, you just almost like you just go right back into it. Like it's so smooth for you and it's so easy. Like you said, you've done it many times. Is that just like a switch? Boom. You just turn it on and off. Like you can be in TV mode just like that. Yeah. It's not, it's not something that, uh, you know, that, uh, involve, um, getting mentally prepared. It's just like, I didn't have to be on TV and all of a sudden if it would have, if somebody said, "Well, we want you to be on TV to announce this," and then it, 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 and built from that, I, I could be comfortable with whatever needed needed to be done, and um, I guess that's it. As as far as on air, and then obviously being behind the sta- behind the scenes, kind of the head of talent relations, so to speak, not not an official title, I guess, but you that's basically your role. And we mentioned last week about crazy schedule, working seven days a week for Vince. What was the schedule like in WCW? Did you have a better schedule at this point? Mm. God, I don't remember. This business, and again, I started with Jim Crocker Promotions as a full-time wrestler in 1971, I think I was almost, I was months before my 28th birthday. So I was not a kid. Mm, nope. and, and I knew that, and I also was 
I wasn't a, a gym rat. I didn't have that wedge body where I, <laughs> it was, you know, I, uh, if they'd have said, well, you got to go to the gym for five times a week. Then, oh man, that would have killed me more than anything. Else. They could ask me to stay up all night working on TV or something, but going to the gym just was not my, not my, and still that way. And I was fortunate enough to be tall. Uh, I'm a little over, slightly over six foot and I got on the scale this morning and I think I was 248. And that's about 10 pounds up from where I've been for the last, I guess I let my weight just sneak up a little bit, but normally my, my, my weight without me dieting or worrying about what I eat or I basically eat what I want and I could live on, uh, pizza and popcorn. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> a junk, I'm a junk food eater, but, um, you know, my weight stays about that. I, and I, Still don't ever go to a gym. I'd be if I went in the gym, they'd have to give me instructions to tell me what to do. I'm lost. I would be lost. I just am tall, and I never let myself get out of shape where I had a big gut. Um, so uh, I, I attribute that to my parents. Uh, that you know the gene, they, you know you, you inherit your genes from from your parents. So I had the height. Um, I I in the ring as a talent could get by because of my height and back when I was in the ring, I, I you know, I do some push-ups in the dressing room. That was the extent of my workout. And, um, I gave the appearance probably in the ring of being bigger than what I actually was because of my height. Um, but I, but I knew, like I say, when I started that, and again, I started at the almost the age of 28, and for the first five years, I was a full-time wrestler. I never thought anything about managing. And I had, I had wrestled. They sent me up to the Canadian Maritimes because Johnny Weaver was going up there, and something happened where some were, uh, and they, they, you know, they gave him star status up there. And one of the top guys for Crockett got hurt and couldn't, 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 I mean, they couldn't even work around it where he could go to the ring. And, and so they, Weaver had to, Weaver wasn't booked because he was supposed to go to the Maritimes. So Weaver stayed and took that spot. And then they thought, well, you know, he, he, they were friends with Leo Burke and the beast and Rudy Kay. And they said, well, so the, they, they decided they for me to go up there. I said, okay, never been up there, new place. And I remember going in to see Jim Crockett, and he said, well, I understand that uh, you know we're gonna Weaver was supposed to go, and we're gonna keep him here because we need him, and this is, you know, this is where his first obligation is. But they they were expecting somebody to come in, and Weaver has said, you could step into that position, and they won't be disappointed with you. Um, and, but I understand you don't have um, seven, eight hundred dollars to buy an airline tickets sitting in your pocket. I said, yeah. So Crockett pump, counts out the money on the table and slides over to me. He said, you go buy your ticket, go up there for the week. When you get up there, they will reimburse you for the cost of your ticket. When you come back, just you know repay me. And that's what I did. And I went up there and 
made a very positive impression on them. And then to the point that it was a seasonal thing there where they, they ran in hockey arenas. So that meant that wrestling was only basically a summer season. And then the fall when the ice was down, you know, their, their season was over uh, through the winter. So this was kind of towards the end of their season. And then they, you know, I went up there and made a, a positive impression on them to the point that they said, we would like to have you come back next year as our our featured performer, as our pe- featured heel. And I'd been basically a babyface in, in Charlotte. And I said, wow. <laughs> you know, I, I heard stories about how that's how opportunities in this business, a lot of times they're, they're something that's just, you, it's not planned out well in advance. All of a sudden, wham, there it is in front of you. One door closes behind you and another is opening in front of you. So when I went back, uh, went in to see Mr. Crockett, gave him the money for my ticket. And he said, well, I understand you really made a good impression up there. And I said, yeah, in fact, they have told me that they, they would like for me to come back there at the beginning of their season next year, which is, you know, we're talking five, six months away. Uh, so I said, I, I would like to, to have, I'm, I'm thrilled to have an opportunity but I made a good impression, and, I, and to have a top spot, you know, doesn't happen every day in the business. And, and Jim Jim Senior said, uh, "Well, uh, he, he said I want you to go up there, and I, I'm proud of you that you made a good impression. And I also want you to understand that when the season's over, you could come back here, and this could be your home for the rest of your career." It'd be up to whatever is, you know, whatever options that you have. And that was really nice that Jim Sr. felt that highly of me to tell me, you made a good impression with them. You know, that's the next step up. But, you know, sometimes things happen and, and always know that this is your home here. You can come back here. So I thanked him. And I went up there and made a good impression. And. They brought me back that following season, and it was like a 23-, 24-week run. And this is now 19, uh, 1970, 73, maybe. <laughs> Seems like. So I how many years it is. And I had been making in uh, Charlotte, as a middle-card guy, probably – $275 a week, which in those days, I, thought, I mean, by today's money, that's probably triple that and, and, and maybe even more. So I was making a lot more than what the average working guy was here. And when I went up there um, for the 23 weeks that following year, I, I made over $1,000 a week. And it was mm. like, wow. I mean, and, and you know, and I was not somebody that went crazy, went out and and and, and bought a big car. You know, I just wow, I can put some money in the bank, and this was. And the business is such that when you go somewhere and are successful, everybody knows who's working where, and so now all of a sudden uh, they wanted me to go to Amarillo. And Dory Funk was the reigning NWA champion. And he, and he had kind of planted the seed before and came in and he met with me privately and he said, when, you're, when I'm the NWA champion, he said, if I come into a territory for a week 
and there's somebody there that I think would just be, man, would, would set Amarillo on fire that I see the possibilities. He said, I got to be careful because um, it, it would cause me a lot of problems if they thought, thought that I was cher- cherry picking talent out of any territory that I went to. But I was flattered that he, that he said that. And then they had a big show in Greensboro and Terry Funk came in to be on the card under Dory defending the world title and Dory Sr. came in. So it was going to be Terry Funk and Dory Sr. in a tag team under Dory Funk Jr. as defending world title. And so Dory Jr. told me, he said, uh, I'd like for you to come down early to Greensboro and I'll tell you where they're staying and just, you know, this is, you know, confidential. I'd like you to come by and I'd like to introduce you to my brother and, and my father. So, sure, absolutely. So I did go down there and, you know, they said, wow, we're anxious to see you tonight because we've heard so many great things about you. And even before I see you, just Dory, Dory knows Amarillo as well as anybody, and if he thinks that you come in there with a with a push as a heel, we'll set the place on fire. So we just would want to tell you that again, we got to be careful because we can't steal talent for or Junior can't steal talent. But you know, our season uh, won't start until the spring, and uh, and ha- and we would like for you to eventually come back to Amarillo. And then one of my dreams, I had, I had. A couple of things that I were like uh, a bucket list. I thought, okay, I'll have made it in the business. Two of the things would have been going to Japan and and because I was born and raised in Trenton, New Jersey, and had gone to Madison Square Garden and sat there in the audience and, and watched, you know, Raka and all of the, the, the greats in the business and dreamed, okay, maybe someday – I can step into the ring in Madison Square Garden. And maybe it's just a dream. And so now all of a sudden, uh, I'm being uh, they're talking about me coming to Amarillo because it's, you're going to go to Japan. We'll get you a couple tours of Japan. And then meanwhile, um, you know, that I would be able to work in Madison Square Garden. So it was like a big turning point, uh, you know, for, for my career. And, and you know, just... Not that I wasn't cocky or anything, but just gave me great, great, you know, great confidence. And so I ended up going to Amarillo and uh, went to Japan. Uh, I ended up going like 15 times over the years, uh, always with uh, Giant Baba, who was all Japan. And the Amarillo office and the Funks booked the American talent that would go on the tours for, for Baba. So first tour I went was a six-week tour. And fell in love with Japan and just, uh, you know, I think of the memories and I got pictures all over my walls here of a lot of those times. And just, uh, I, I, I was never the biggest, never the best, but nobody loved the business more than I did or was willing to work any harder than I was, which is not a guarantee that you're going to, you know, uh, have opportunities that, that can be very fickle, but, uh, I've been very, very lucky in the business, and 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 now, uh, you know, my career wound down, and uh, I, I 
paid attention to the creative side of the business because as a talent, I knew that my days would be numbered. And I, I wanted to see not only my match, but how the, the card came together and 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 how what order the matches were in and, and mainly how TV was produced. And, and, and because TV made the live events back in those days in particular. So how is TV structured? You know, what do you do with it? When you're a talent, you have one match and you have a TV match. All you think about is your match. Now I'm looking at the, whether it's a one hour or a two hour window and how you structure a TV. And that was, uh, again, all, all part of my, uh, part of my learning curve. And the reason that I have two hall of fame rings today, just because I had a chance to given the opportunity to basically do it, do everything in the business and was fortunate enough to, uh, always be surrounded with good talent and good people. And it's like when I first started in Amarillo or in Charlotte, like I said, I was almost 28 years old. So they were like Johnny Heideman and, uh, um, Sandy Scott and Art Nelson. Art Nelson was someone that had a great influence on me. And Art was somebody who, uh, was very stern and didn't talk to people a lot. And he kept to himself and he took a liking to me because in some ways I was kind of like him. Not that I was, didn't talk to people or communicate, but just he liked the way I carried myself. And, you know, I sat in the dressing room, just took care of my business. Didn't, you know, didn't talk, run my mouth. And, and so he, he really helped me, really helped me a lot. And you mentioned basically, you know, getting two seventy-five a week as far as money and what that's worth now. But I don't need an exact dollar amount. But I'm just curious of this because WWF, you know, paid you a certain amount. You go to WCW financially. Were you getting paid more in WCW than you were in the WWF? Wow. To be honest with you, I don't remember. I do. What I do remember is my. And and again, I made two seventy a a week when I was starting out underneath, and I went to the to Canadian Maritimes and averaged just over a thousand dollars a week for twenty three weeks, and that just shows you know where you're here and and where you're up here, and uh, my best year in the business. I think I made two hundred twenty thousand dollars, which back in those days was a lot of money. And mm-hmm. I and I know the guys today probably it, it pales in comparison today because it's the business is different. But um, and I, I you know again I I I didn't go crazy buying things and um, always you know kept kept my head on straight, knowing that that. Uh, this business can be something where on any given night, whether it's a bad ring or, or somebody who is not as experienced as your opponent, or sometimes it could be somebody who, who is experienced like you, but it's, it's a physical encounter and whether it, I mean, uh, I, you hit the rope and you, if, if you, as you hit the rope or you're doing crisscross or something, if you think, and again, you learn how to put your arm and lean into it, but, and you, you could 
drive yourself crazy thinking about, well, what if the rope broke? And I've seen and, I, and it's happened to me. And um, I was in a tag match or something or in a match with Dory Funkin somewhere up in Colorado. And I hit the rope and I just kept going. And I cartwheeled and did a complete one, actually a 360 as I'm falling and came down my feet hit and just kind of plump on my butt and back. Dory was like, oh, my God, you know, I think I might have broke my neck or something. He comes out. He's picking me up. Are you all right? <laughs> yeah. I said, I don't know how I got here, but I'm OK. Hmm. And, and uh, but that's a, a part of what the risk is every night. And if you if you if you let that it's like a baseball player. They say guys that gets beaned, some of them never, never are the same after that. Whether it's the that all of a sudden they realize that any time you're in the batter's box and somebody is throwing a pitch somewhere between 78 and 100 miles an hour, and for that 60 feet six inches, you don't have the time to react. And guys get hit, beamed, and some guys never recover from that. It's a, a psychological thing. Same thing with wrestling. You know, you you suffer a bad injury, and uh, it can play with you mentally. So I was lucky. I I had 3,200 actual professional wrestling matches, aside from the managing part. And, um, you know, I've got a, a separated shoulder, and I've got jammed joints in my thumb where it was jammed so many times it's got calcium buildup but by and large uh very lucky didn't uh, uh didn't didn't and i didn't take silly chances but even without that um it, it's the nature of the and some of the rings like uh in toronto maple leaf gardens you could take a bump on a on a on a cement floor with just a light piece of carpeting on top and it, and it would be softer than that ring was in, in Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens. You'd let alone being slammed, just taking a bump and all of a sudden, <laughs> you want, you, you want to get oxygen in your lungs. You want to breathe, but the, you get stunned by how hard the ring is. And there, there's, there's a few other places that were like that too. So again, you know, 3,200 matches, Throughout my career as an actual wrestler, where I had the tights on and I'm I'm in the ring, um, very fortunate. And a lot of it is what in New Jersey when I was uh, in high school, they had no amateur wrestling program in New Jersey at the time I was in high school. And so, uh, because and I had never seen an amateur wrestling match, and I've been I've been I had a fan club for Johnny Valentine and befriended. Uh, the original Zebra Kid, George Bolas, who was from Ohio, and he traveled the world. And you, a lot of times I get asked the same question, and I'm sure I ask them, you know, how do I become a wrestler? What do I do? And George told George Bolas told me two things that, that are important. He said, number one, he said, get your education first wrestling business is going to be here you know don't don't feel that you've got to rush you're a young man uh get your education get that degree and and have that degree that diploma in your back pocket 
because this is a business that it could be a bad fall on any given night. Something crazy could happen that your career ends on the spot. But if you have a degree in your back pocket, you could go out and, and be gainfully employed that, that next day, which was great, great advice. And then the other thing he said was, learn the fundamentals of amateur wrestling. And he said, you think, well, God, professional wrestling and amateur wrestling are seem like they're two totally separate things. And he said, well, I will tell you this. If you learn the fundamentals of amateur wrestling, you'll be a more polished and successful professional. And he was right. Because as an amateur, you learn leverage. You learn things that are logical. And so you end up incorporating that into your style as a professional. And so if somebody watching who understands the you know leverage and what have you makes what you do easier for them to to accept so i i owe, i have a picture of george bolas up here on my wall and i never forgot that that was great advice that he gave me was uh uh get my education which i did i have a degree and learning the fundamentals of amateur wrestling which i did as well I love it. And I love how we can kind of go on one topic and we can just give you a little bit and you can go off on a whole nother topic. It's just, it is great. I, I, I love it. You got so much information. Like you said, 60 years in the business, you got so many different little stories of different guys you met. And, and you know, we're talking about uh, Bischoff, then we can go to Vince Jr., then Vince Sr., then Zebra Kid, the original Zebra Kid. Then we can go all the way to Dory Funk and Amarillo. I mean, you have been there, you've done it all, but I think this is a great stopping point as far as as the, the WCW talk. And we definitely will talk in the weeks and months to come further about Bischoff and further about WCW and further about your time in Amarillo as well. I mean, we're definitely going to get to that. One of and, my favorite places in Amarillo. And I would encourage your, your listeners to, uh, and, and hopefully they've been bearing with us and, and haven't been bored to death with my stories. But when I talk about some of the places that I've been, because uh, I'll see people, you know, that, that will come up to me. Oh, I, I remember when you were in the Maritimes. Well, people will send in um, questions, and I encourage you, the questions should come to you. And yep. I, I encourage them to, uh, if there's something that you heard that, that you want to hear me talk more about or a place that I've been, or whether it's Japan, whether it's the Canadian Maritimes or whatever, or any, any questions that you might have, um, I encourage you to, to take the time to doesn't have to be real lengthy, but just to email you and say, you know, I heard, I heard JJ's interview and he mentioned this in passing and then it never came back to that. But boy, I'd like to hear more about, you know, whether it's a particular part of the country, whether it's Japan, whether it's Europe where I wrestled in Germany or I spent a year in Australia. I wrestled and lived in Australia for a year and a month in New Zealand going over and a month in New Zealand uh, coming back. So, uh, you know, I, I've been a lot of places, done a lot of things and have a lot of stories. But uh, and I, I get off on a tangent and, and go off. But if there's something that that your listeners uh, have heard me mention or something that, that maybe I haven't mentioned, what does he think about this or, or whether it's a person or whatever? I encourage you to please, because uh, that that gives me, like you say, uh, 
I give you one thing and then all of a sudden, boy, you're off and running. We, and we didn't, you and I didn't uh, talk prior to this today, uh, this today in terms of have, we have no itinerary. I have no bullet points. Mm-hmm. I have nothing, nothing that, uh, it, it, it's just, it's just a conver. I, I look at it as just a conversation between you and I. Absolutely. And of course I want to get out there. The plugs, a new pro wrestling tea store has been set up. So just go to pro wrestling tees.com type in JJ Dale and check that out. Also check out Patreon, patreon.com. A page has been set up for a JJ Dillon, where you can become a patron and support the show. Also, please check out JJ's website, jjdillon.com. While you're on there, buy JJ's book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, from McMahon to McMahon. And, of course, like we mentioned, please email us your questions, comments, concerns, anything you'd like, jjdillonpodcast at gmail.com. One more time, that email is jjdillonpodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and JJ, like always, awesome chatting with you and and definitely looking forward to this each yeah. and every week. And I hope you're and enjoying it just as much as I am. I am, and I and I I still uh, uh, I don't have an agent. I don't solicit uh, appearances, but people will call me and say, you know, we're having a show and we'd love to have you come in and do a meet and greet with the fans. Uh, I recently was uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And had yep. a, had a wonderful you know wonderful time there, and it, it's a it's kind of an extension above this where fans can come and um, I don't you know like I say have a full schedule and it kind of slows down towards the end of the year but uh, October nineteenth uh, I will which is uh, coming up later this month um, I will be in Rome Georgia on Saturday October nineteenth so in the area check it out and then uh in november as the year is winding down uh, uh herb simmons uh my good friend is uh from st louis has a, a big show on saturday november 2nd and i'll be there in st louis uh and arn will be there on that date barry windham will be there on that date we're going to do a little seminar so you fans in st louis uh you know, uh, you can check out Herb, Herb Simmons, I'm sure, has a a, a website there. And uh, doing a, a seminar with Arn and with Barry, is uh, that's kind of a new experience. And then I've got a, um, a date coming up in uh, Baltimore, Maryland on Saturday, November 9th. And that's pretty much my appearances for the year. But uh, in, the, in the area, uh, if you see that I'm appearing... Uh, I'd love to have you come out, come up and introduce yourself. And, and a lot of times, uh, you know, it's hard for people in a busy schedule to take the time and maybe send an email or question, come up and say hello. And, and if for something you like, tell me if there's something you don't like, I want to hear that too. And, uh, if you have a question that you'd like me to discuss on the air, that's an opportunity to bring it up. But I've enjoyed this, uh, John and, uh, and look forward to doing it and, and uh, looking forward to see what questions come in to kind of give us some direction on what we talk about. Absolutely. And I highly encourage anybody out there go any of these signings or seminars, these appearances definitely go out of your way to see JJ Dillon. And of course, fans, we hope you enjoyed the show this week and hopefully we will see you next week on JJ 
the J.J. Dillon Podcast. Thank you so much. This podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire.